I'm giving this class because I want to ensure that everybody is properly prepared for the holidays. So I want to make sure that you have the proper background. And the key, of course, is always to understand what is the historical roots and the underlying meaning of the holidays. So that's what we're going to go through. We'll start with Christmas, and then we'll run straight through Christmas until we get to New Year's, run through New Year's, and hopefully we'll be able to pull this whole thing off in the amount of time that we have available. Popular myth puts Jesus' birth on December 25th in the year 1 AD or 1 CE. That's when supposedly, at least according to people in the streets, that's when Jesus was born. The reality. The New Testament gives absolutely no date whatsoever for Jesus' birth. Not a day or a year. In fact, the gospel that was written the earliest of all the gospels, which was Mark, which they say was written around 65 CE, presents us with an adult Jesus. Implying that in early Christianity there was absolutely no interest whatsoever in Jesus' birth. And, in fact, even the later Gospels that do mention Jesus' birth don't say anything whatsoever about the day he was born, as if that was not a significant date to the early Christians. <coughs> Why are there people who think that, in fact, he was born in the year 1 CE, 1 AD? Where did they get that idea? So it was actually a simple mathematical error that was made by a Scythian monk. The fellow's name was Dionysius Exegus. And when he added up the numbers, I'm going to give you the whole calculation on this sheet, but when he added up the numbers, he just added wrong. And you'll see exactly where the mistake is. And because he added wrong, he ended up being off by four years. But definitely, according to the Catholic uh, numbers, Jesus was not born in the year 1 AD. He was born in the, around the year 3 BCE, right? according to the numbers that are provided by the Catholic Church. And in fact, the, the, uh, the authorities within the Catholic Church believe that he was not born in 1 AD. The official oral tradition of the Catholics, the, the Jerome Biblical Commentary, has an essay by a Cardinal Fitzmaier. Fitzmaier uh, is one of the most influential people in the English-speaking world uh, who speaks for the Pope. And Fitzmaier writes as follows, quote, he says, though the year of Jesus' birth is not reckoned with certainty, the birth definitely did not occur in A.D. 1. The Christian era, supposed to have its starting point in the year of Jesus' birth, is based on a miscalculation introduced circa 533 CE by Dionysius Exegus. So, first of all, you should just know the year is not year one. In other words, when the Christians count years, they are not counting from Jesus' birth. Jesus was probably born in around 3 BCE. Okay. Point number two. What about the day? In other words, the, the calendar date. According to, according to the Christians, when was he born? <coughs> so, the earliest document that we have is from around 243 CE, written in North Africa. And this Catholic document, this original church document, called the De Pasca Computus, so it puts Jesus' birthday on March the 28th. Okay? The earliest Catholic documents we have claim that was the day that he was born. The, the truth is that the, the, the Catholic Church was not confident in that. And that's why when Clement, who was the Bishop of Alexandria, uh, died around 215 CE, when he made his claim about when Jesus was born, instead of March 28th, he put it on November the 18th. Fitzmaier, this cardinal of the Catholic Church today, says they were both wrong. Both of, the, both of those are based on miscalculations. Really, Jesus was born on September the 11th, 3 BCE. So however you want to cut it, March 28th, November the 18th, September the 11th, he definitely was not born on December the 25th, 
at all. That's certain. At least that's the claims of the Catholic Church. And the truth is, there are no serious Catholic theologians or Protestant theologians who believe that he was born December 25th. Everybody knows that's not his birthday. That is the day when Christians commemorate his birth, when they remember that he was born and they celebrate his birth. But that is definitely not the day on which he was born according to the Catholic Church. So if we're going to be celebrating, at least we should know what we're celebrating, right? We are not celebrating his birthday because December 25th, according to nobody, is his birthday. Okay. How did December 25th come to be celebrated? So the story is as follows. During pre-Christian Roman pagan times, there was a festival that lasted from December the 17th through December the 25th. During this eight-day festival, the Roman courts shut down. Why? Because the way the festival was celebrated, this festival was called Saturnalia. The way the festival was celebrated was that everything was permitted. There were absolutely no rules. In fact, if you damaged somebody or murdered somebody during this eight-day festival, you were not held responsible. You were completely off the hook. Why? Because that was the festival. So the courts shut down during this eight-day period because there was no purpose in then staying, staying open. You could never be prosecuted for anything you did during these eight days. Uh, at the beginning of the festival, the Roman pagans appointed from, quote-unquote, the enemies of the Roman people. Each Roman community would pick one person to be the enemy of the Roman people. By the way, you can imagine what sort of people were chosen to, for this position. In other words, who were the Romans really opposed to in those days? So they would choose, every Roman community would choose one person and name that person the Lord of Misrule. On the eighth day, they would then take this person and they would murder him in a horrific fashion. I will not describe what they did to him in public. I will just tell you that it was very slow and there was not much left of his body at the end. So it was a seven-day holiday followed by the eighth day where there was this human sacrifice. And that completed the festival. The festival of Saturnalia, right? December the 17th through the 25th. Okay, now, when Rome fell, the Saturnalia survived. So the Greek historian Lucian, he describes exactly how the Greeks observed the Saturnalia. And he says like this. He says, this is in a dialogue he wrote called Saturnalia. He says, in addition to human sacrifice, there were observance of the following customs. One, widespread intoxication, especially on the concluding day of the festival, December 25th. You see, something's never changed. Going from house to house while singing in the streets naked. By the way, that's a precursor of caroling. Rape and other sexual license and consuming human-shaped biscuits. What's that a precursor of? Gingerbread, Gingerbread man, exactly. Now, what happened was, the, the early Christian church had, they were trying to proselytize, they were trying to convert pagans, and they had a, a theology that it was acceptable to import pagan observances if, in exchange for that, you could extract belief in Jesus. And there's many examples throughout history of how the Christians just brought pagan observances into Christianity in order to bring Christians in. But one of the more colorful examples is when they imported the Saturnalia in the 4th century. In the 4th century, they decided they were going to bring the Saturnalia into Christianity in order to bring the Saturnalia cult worshippers into the religion as well. The problem is that when they imported the Saturnalia, they did not change its style of observance. And therefore, Christianity now had as part of it this 8-day period of absolute, uncontrolled wildness. There's a professor at the University of Massachusetts by the name of Stephen Nissenbaum. He explains the following phenomena that took place when the Christians imported the Saturnalia. I'm going to quote from him. He says, 
Quote, in return for ensuring massive observance of the anniversary of the Savior's birth by assigning it to this resonant date, December 25th, the Church, for its part, tacitly agreed to allow the holiday to be celebrated more or less the way it had always been. The earliest Christmas holidays were celebrated by drinking, sexual indulgence, singing naked in the streets, a precursor of modern caroling, etc. So it turns out when the Christians imported Saturnalia, they did it wholesale, and the entire holiday came into Christianity. Originally, it was just an accommodation. They just imported it in order to bring in the, 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 the pagans. But of course, after it had been part of the Christian tradition for a long time, so it actually started to take on Christian significance. Initially, there were some Christians who didn't buy it, because they, they knew that December 25th has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus' birth. It's a joke. So for example, you've all heard of the Puritans. Remember Cotton Mather and Increase Mather? These guys were leading Puritan theologians that were responsible for settling the Americas. So Increase Mather wrote from Boston in 1687, quote, this is the leader of the Puritan community, quote, the early Christians who first observed the Nativity on December 25th did not do so thinking that Christ was born in that month, but because the heathens' Saturnalia was at that time kept in Rome, and they were willing to have those pagan holidays metamorphosed into Christian ones. <coughs> Nevertheless, the Puritans were totally opposed to Christmas, and in fact, between the years 1659 and 1681, if anyone was caught in Massachusetts keeping Christmas, they were thrown into jail. It was illegal to keep Christmas in Puritan America. Absolutely forbidden, because it was heresy. What are you celebrating December 25th for? That's a pagan holiday. It has nothing to do with Christianity. Until today, there are groups in Europe that do not ce celebrate December 25th as Jesus' birthday, because everybody knows this is not his birthday. Unfortunately, the most <coughs> depraved customs of the Saturnalia became Christian customs, and they were practiced vigorously by the Catholic Church. In 1466, Pope Paul, for the amusement of his Roman citizens, arranged for the events of Saturnalia on December 25th to include forcing the Jews to run naked through the streets of the city. So we have an eyewitness report from a Christian who was present at the festivities. And he writes as follows. Before they were to run, the Jews were richly fed so as to make the race more difficult for them, and at the same time, much more amusing for we spectators. They ran amid Rome's taunting shrieks and peals of laughter, while the Holy Father, the Pope, stood upon a richly ornamented balcony and laughed heartily. That was how Christmas used to be celebrated. These sorts of Saturnalia celebrations were conducted by Christians straight through the 18th and 19th century. During the 18th and 19th century, the rabbis of the ghetto in Rome were forced to wear clownish outfits and march through the streets to the jeers of the crowd, pelted by a variety of missiles, quote-unquote, and we know what those were. When the Jewish community of Rome sent a petition in 1836 to Pope Gregory XVI, begging him to stop the annual Saturnalia abuse of the Jewish community, he responded, quote, it is not opportune to make any innovation right now. And the Saturnalia was left in place. On December 25th, 1881, Christian leaders whipped the Polish masses into anti-Semitic frenzies, and that led to riots across the country. In Warsaw, there were 12 Jews that were murdered. There were hundreds of Jews who were maimed or wounded, and dozens of Jewish women who were raped. There were two million rubles worth of property destroyed. 
that was a, a, a classic European Christmas celebration. And that's the way it had always been celebrated from Rome straight through the 19th century in Europe. So that's the history of, uh, of Christmas. Now what about the, the Christmas observances, the things that we're all familiar with? For instance, Christmas trees. So it's well known that there is no source in any Christian literature for Christmas trees. What are Christmas trees? They were attempting in the Near East to attract members of a group called the Asherah cult. The Asherah cult were people who worshipped trees. And what they used to do was they used to bring, once a year they used to bring trees into their homes and they would decorate them with candles and put all sorts of fancy dressings on them and they would worship these things. So when the early Christians came to the members of the Asherah cult and they said, you know, become Christians, they said, well, we can't because, you know, we worship our tree. So the, the, the Christians said, that's not a problem. We can have the tree also. Just bring the tree into your house on um, December 25th. And it became a cholent. They would throw whatever pagan observances they wanted to uh, absorb into December the 25th. And therefore, on December 25th, people brought Christmas trees into their home. What about mistletoe? Okay, this is one of my favorites. Mistletoe is a highly poisonous plant, an extremely toxic plant. You have to be very careful when you handle it. And a classic Christmas observance is that you hang a bow of mistletoe on your front door. Okay, where did this come from? So, Norse mythology recounts how the god Baldr was killed using a mistletoe arrow by his rival, Hodor, while fighting for the female, Nana. So druid rituals, which were built on this, this Norse mythology, used mistletoe for human sacrifice. They used to poison children with mistletoe, and that would be their sacrifice. How did it end up that people would give kisses under the mistletoe? That's a, a, a modern custom, is that a man grabs a woman and kisses her under the mistletoe. So the answer is, it was a synthesis of these Norse druid mythology rituals of killing people with, with mistletoe, a mixture of that and the, the December 25th custom of wild sexual license. And in fact, only today in, in civilized America do we just give kisses under the mistletoe. As recently as 100 years ago in Europe on December 25th, it was considered completely acceptable for a man to grab a woman in the streets on December 25th and do whatever he wanted with her. And no one could have any complaints if she was out of her house on December 25th, she was fair game. And that was part of the Saturnalia, part of the, the, the grand celebrations of December 25th. What about Christmas presents? In the early Roman times, in early pagan Rome, the Roman emperors insisted that the Jewish community bring offerings to the emperors on December 25th. And the Jews were forced to give these presents to the emperor on pain of death. In later incarnations of this ritual, not only were the Jews compelled to give these presents to the emperor, but non-Jews as well were forced at pain of death. Eventually, this evolved into gift giving generally among people, that people would give gifts not only to the emperor, but to each other as well. And then, very, very late in Christian history, this whole thing was linked to Santa Claus and his supposed gift giving to children, and that became the whole custom of giving Christmas presents. Uh, and it's actually a quite modern custom that people voluntarily gave, gave presents to, to children on Christmas. Nicholas, not Saint Nick, but Nicholas, was born in Perara, Turkey in 270 CE, and he was later named the Bishop of Myra. He died in 345 CE, and 
much, much later, about 1600 years later, the church, they sainted him in the 19th century and they gave him a day. And of course, St. Nicholas's Day is December the 6th. Has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas whatsoever. St. Nicholas's Day is December the 6th. Just be because today we celebrate St. Nicholas's memory on December the 25th, and I'll explain in a few moments how that happened. St. Nicholas was one of the chief bishops who convened the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE. If you want to see the work of St. Nicholas up on big screen, so there's this great film that's coming out by Mel Gibson, and you can, you can watch the film and you can see on big screen why Christians massacred Jews throughout history. Realize that John and other parts of the New Testament that, he, that, that St. Nicholas was also involved in editing are the texts that paved the way for the Holocaust, right? It was St. Nicholas and friends who taught people it was the evil Jews who killed their God. So it's because of the work of, of St. Nicholas that we can now go visit mass graves at Auschwitz. How did St. Nicholas become the Santa Claus that we know of today? It all started in 1087. In 1087, there was a group of pagan sailors. And these sailors, who probably were not terribly interested in St. Nicholas from a Christian point of view, went to his grave in Turkey and collected his bones and took his bones to a site in Italy, in Bari, Italy. The problem was that Bari, Italy was a city which was largely dominated by the grandmother cult, or the cult of Pasca Epiphania. The grandmother cult was a, a group that worshipped a <coughs> pagan deity, a pagan female deity who was boon-giving. She would give gifts to people. And specifically, this god, Pasca Epiphania, used to fill children's stockings with gifts. Okay? When Nicholas arrived in, when Nicholas' bones arrived in Bari, so the cult ousted the grandmother and they replanted St. Nicholas in her place. And members of this group used to have a pageant on December the 6th where they would give gifts to each other. So this was the beginning of the Nicholas cult. Now the Nicholas cult ended up spreading to the north and it was eventually uh, adopted by German and Celtic pagans. These groups had previously worshipped a god, a pagan god, by the name of Woden. Woden is the, the father of Thor, who you've probably heard of before. He's also the father of Tu, who is another, another great pagan god. Uh, he's also the father of Baldr, who we heard about earlier. So Woden, this chief god, he had a long white beard, and he rode a horse through the heavens one evening each autumn. So what happened was Nicholas was merged by these Celtic and German pagans. He was merged with Woden. And when he, when he was merged, so he shed his Mediterranean appearance, realized that up until this merging of Woden and Nicholas, how did Nicholas dress? In shorts and a t-shirt. He lived in, in the Near East. When he arrived in the north of Europe, so suddenly he was all garbed in winter clothing, he mounted a flying horse, rescheduled his flight for December, and donned this, this heavy winter clothing. He had, took on this long white beard. How did he become a Christian hero? So the Christians were in Northern Europe making a bid for pagan observance. They wanted these pagans to come and join Christianity. And exactly as they had done with other pagan observances, they went to the, the Woden cult, and they said to them, become Christians. And they said, we can't, you know, we worship Woden Nicholas. So they said, bring Woden Nicholas right in, but make the day when he makes his flight, December the 25th. You just have to move it ahead 19 days, and then everything's fine. 
So they moved his, his day ahead 19 days, they became Christians, and December 25th became the day on which St. Nicholas' memory was, was celebrated, even though until today, if you get a copy of the New Testament, flip to the back, open it up and look at the saints' days, St. Nicholas' day is December the 6th, not December 25th, but it's celebrated December 25th because they were trying to bring in these German Celtic uh, pagans. Okay. What about our Santa Claus? Where does, he, where does he come from? So our Santa Claus was largely created in the 19th century. The story is as follows. In 1809, Washington Irving, uh, do you remember the, the story of Rip Van Winkle? The Legend of Sleepy Hollow? Okay, these are all written by Washington Irving. He wrote a much less well-known satire about Dutch history called Knickerbocker History. Several times in his book, Knickerbocker History, he refers to St. Nicholas by his Dutch name, Santa Claus. And Santa, the name Santa Claus was born. Okay, now we still don't exactly have our Santa Claus, but we're getting close. Okay, what happened next? That was 1809. There was a Christian theologian by the name of Clement Moore, who also happened to be a very talented writer. One night in 1822, he's riding in a carriage, and Christmas was approaching, and this fellow Clement Moore wrote a poem. I have a copy of the poem sitting in front of me, and I'm gonna read to you a few lines from the poem. It goes as follows, this is 1822. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care and hoped that St. Nicholas soon would be there. This poem, in addition to calling him Santa Claus, now gave him eight reindeer and named them, and it had a Santa Claus who descended through chimneys. So it was in 1822, because of one poem by Clement Moore, that Santa Claus first got his reindeer and the idea of coming down through chimneys. But still, Santa Claus did not look like the Santa Claus that you and I know about. At that time, Santa Claus still looked like this, this very gruesome, scary character wearing a long black furry coat. He was short, bent over, he carried a cane. He was a very frightening creature up until that point. The truth is that there's still remnants of the Santa Claus that used to come to actually punish children. Do you remember the song? You better not pout, you better not cry. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, why are you telling the kids don't pout and don't cry? What are you warning them for? The answer is because Santa Claus, when he arrives, if you're pouting and crying, will beat the living <clears throat> daylights out of you, yes? So that's the reason, right, up until the late 1800s, this was the Santa Claus. Okay, now what happened? The way that Santa Claus was transformed was there was a magazine called Harper's Weekly. And they had a great Bavarian illustrator by the name of Thomas Nast. And Nast, from 1862 through 1886, produced 2,200 cartoons of Santa Claus. <coughs> so in addition to making Santa Claus a jolly fellow, so Nast also located Santa Claus for the first time ever in history at the North Pole and gave him elves. Now, of course, this is crazy because St. Nicholas lived in Turkey and was buried in, 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 in Italy. So he has nothing to do with the North Pole whatsoever. But nevertheless, Nas created this whole mythology about how he lived with his elves in this workshop at the North Pole making toys for children. He was a jolly fellow. So it was really Thomas Nas that created the jolly Santa Claus that we know about. There was still one thing that was missing, though. Up until the late 1800s, even the early 1900s, whenever you would see a picture of Santa Claus, he was always dressed in black. Where's the red suit? In 1931, Coca-Cola Corporation was in financial straits. Why? Because they just removed cocaine from their product and sales were slumping. They put in caffeine, but you know, it just wasn't the same. You know what I mean? Yeah? So they needed some sort of clever advertising campaign that would give Coca-Cola a pick-me-up. So they hired a 
a very famous Swedish commercial artist by the name of Hayden Sundblom to create a Coke drinking Santa. Okay, Sundblom modeled his Santa on his friend, Lou Prentice, who was chosen for being overweight, cheerful, and had a, he had a chubby red face. The corporation, however, insisted that Santa's fur trim suit be bright Coca-Cola red. And Santa was born, a blend of Christian crusader, pagan god, and commercial idol. And all the Santas that you have ever seen in your life are based on the drawings by this Swedish artist. They are the Coca-Cola Santa. That is the Santa that we know of today. Coca-Cola is also spread throughout Europe, but there's parts of Europe where there's still traditions about the old scary Santa in the black suit. It's only in America where the only Santas we've ever seen are, you know, the red, cheery Coca-Cola Santas. Stepping back from Christmas, we're going to proceed to New Year shortly. Stepping back from Christmas, let's just understand what the holiday is so that we can celebrate it properly. Okay? Point number one. Christmas has always been a holiday that was celebrated carelessly. And when I say carelessly, I mean carelessly in two ways. One is that the observance was literally careless. That it was a time when Roman courts were shut down and people did whatever they felt like doing. Two, it was careless insofar as it was brought into the Christian religion thoughtlessly. No one ever asked, what connection does this really have to Christianity? People said, it's fun, let's do it. Point number two. Officially, Christmas is the celebration, it's the commemoration, it's the day when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. That is, the God who came to earth once and for all to do away with Judaism. He announced that the Old Testament is null and void, that mitzvahs need no longer be kept, that the Jews have been abandoned because they're an evil, sinful people, and that now that they've been abandoned, there's a new chosen people, the Christians, and there's a new Bible, the New Testament. And the Jews have no business from now on ever observing their, their, their religion. Their religion is dead and gone. That is the, the, the meaning behind the celebration of December the 25th. That's the meaning that a Catholic would attach to it or a Protestant would attach to it. Point number three, Christmas is a lie. Jesus definitely was not born on December the 25th. Even a, even a Christian will tell you that. Point number four, historically December the 25th is a day on which Jews have been shamed, tortured, and murdered. Point number five, Many of the Christmas customs, including Christmas trees, mistletoe, Christmas presents, and Santa Claus, are just modern incarnations of the most depraved pagan rituals ever practiced on this planet. Often when I give this talk, people get angry with me. And they say, like, Kelman, cut it out. Like, you know, we just want to have fun. You know, like, you know, we don't need to know all of this stuff. We're, we're, we don't intend any of this. We're not celebrating Christmas because of what Christmas means. It's just a nice time when people get together with good cheer, and are, are nice to each other, and they give presents, and they celebrate, and it's fun, and you're ruining the whole thing. And I understand that sens sensibility. I understand why people feel that way. To people who feel that way, I would just ask the following question. There's a holiday which is not celebrated widely in America. It's only a very, very small population in America that celebrates April the 20th. There's a slightly larger German-Austrian-Polish population that celebrates that day. April the 20th, is Hitler Day. It's the day on which Hitler was born, and it's celebrated by neo-Nazis around the world. Imagine that April the 20th became a more popular holiday, and slowly, as its historical roots were forgotten, it spread throughout popular culture. Imagine five generations from now, your great-great-great-grandchildren are getting all dressed up, and they're heading off to a Hitler Day celebration. 
and they're all gonna go, and they have they have little dolls with a little mustache on it, and they have, you know, they wear these these wear these these cute swastikas on their clothing, and they they go and like they, you know, people dress up in like Auschwitz uniforms, they do all sorts of cute things like this, and they all get drunk and they have a party and they play nice music and they get presents to each other and it's good cheer and it's really happy. If you could travel forward in time, five generations, and you saw your granddaughter, your grandson, going off to a Hitler Day party, is there anything that you would want to say to them? Is there any message you would have for them? With this metaphor in mind, you can decide exactly how you want to celebrate December 25th, which is a day when Holocaust-esque activities were always perpetrated. I'll leave the discussion of Christmas with a Christmas card. In 1941, there was a Christmas card that was sent to the entire German people. It was published in a very popular Christian newspaper called Der Sturmer. And it was actually written by the, the, the newspaper's editor, Julius Streicher. Streicher, in 1941, wrote in this Christmas card to the German people that there's a way that this, traditionally December 25th was celebrated. And he encouraged Germans to return to this sort of celebration. And he wrote as follows. If one really wants to put an end to the continued prospering of this curse from heaven that is the Jewish blood, there's only one way to do it. To eradicate this people, this Satan's son, root and branch, have a Merry Christmas. As we approach the, the day December 25th, we can hold these ideas in mind to determine exactly how we want to celebrate the holiday. Moving forward, let's talk briefly about New Year's. In 46 BCE, the Roman Emperor Julius Caesar first established January the 1st as New Year's Day. Okay. Why did he decide that January the 1st should be New Year's Day? Janus was the Roman god of doors and gates. And he had two faces, one looking forward and one looking back. So Caesar felt that the month named after this god, January, would be the appropriate door to the new year. So it turns out the first January 1st that was ever celebrated was celebrated and dedicated to a pagan god. January, and that's why Janus, and that's why until today, January, the month named after that pagan god, is celebrated as the beginning of the year. What did the first New Year's party ever look like? Caesar celebrated the first January 1st New Year by ordering the violent routing of revolutionary Jewish forces in the Galilee. Eyewitnesses say that the streets literally flowed with blood. In years later, Roman pagans observed the New Year by engaging in drunken orgies, a ritual they believed constituted a personal reenacting of the chaotic world that existed before the cosmos was ordered by the gods. And again, that's pretty much how New Year's is celebrated today. As people are getting together in Times Square, people will be getting drunk, there'll be wildness, police will be out in full force. The New York Police Department was actually formed in response to celebrations that took place this time of year. As Christianity spread, pagan holidays were either incorporated into the Christian calendar or abandoned altogether. By the early medieval period, most of Christian Europe regarded Annunciation Day, which was March the 25th, as the beginning of the year. What's Annunciation Day? According to Catholic tradition, that was the day when the angel Gabriel told Mary that she'd be impregnated by God and conceive a son to be called Jesus. So the pagans celebrated January the 1st as the beginning of the year, but the Christians said, no way. That's not a Christian holiday. March the 25th is the beginning of the year, Annunciation Day. 
When was the first time that Christians ever celebrated January the 1st as the beginning of their year? After William the Conqueror, who's also, I think, appropriately called William the Bastard, when he first became the King of England on December the 25th, 1066, he decreed that the English return to the date that was first established by the Roman pagans. Why did he do this? He wanted to ensure the commemoration of Jesus' birthday, December 25th, would align with the day of his coronation, and the commemoration of Jesus' circumcision, January the 1st, would start the new year off, thus rooting the English and Christian calendars in his own coronation. Unfortunately for William, his innovation was eventually rejected, and all of Christendom abandoned January the 1st and went back to observing Annunciation Day, March the 25th. So just to back up and see what happened, January the 1st was a pagan holiday. March 25th was the beginning of the Christian New Year. William the Bastard tried to get January the 1st to be the beginning of the Christian year. The Christians followed it while he was alive, and when he died, they rejected it and went back to March 25th. 500 years later, we're talking very recently in history, in 1582, one of the most vicious anti-Semites ever in history, Hugo Bon Compagni, who is also called Pope Gregory XIII, abandoned the traditional Julian calendar. Why? Okay. The calendar that had been set up by Julius Caesar reckoned the solar year as being 365 and a quarter days, which is not correct. That's really wrong. What he used to do was, he used to intercalate a leap day every four years in order to maintain the correspondence between the calendar and the, the lunar and solar cycles. Really, however, the solar year is, and the, the Talmud knew this 2,000 years earlier, the solar year is 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 46 seconds, or 365.2422 days, not 365. So this slight inaccuracy caused the Julian calendar to slip behind the seasons about one day per century. And although this regression had amounted to 14 days by Pope Gregory's time, he based his, ref his reform on the restoration of the vernal equinox, which is March the 11th to the date it had 1,257 years earlier. Why? Because 1,257 years earlier was the Council of Nicaea, which was called on March 21st, 325 CE. So Pope Gregory, the anti-Semite, wanted to root the new calendar in one of the most anti-Semitic anti conferences that ever took place, the Council of Nicaea, where they put together John and the rest of the New Testament. Pope Gregory, Gregory made this correction by advancing the calendar 10 days. The change was made the day after October the 4th, 1582, and the following day was established as October the 15th, 1582. The Gregorian calendar, that's the calendar that America currently operates on, differs from the previous Julian calendar in three ways, two of which are irrelevant for our purposes, but one of which is interesting. The first is, no century year is a leap year unless it is exactly divisible by 400. So for instance, the year 1600, the year 2000 could be a leap year. Okay. Number two, years divisible by 4000 are common, not leap years. And number three, and here's the key innovation, starting with Pope Gregory in 1582, the new year would again begin with January the 1st. So the reason that we celebrate today, January the 1st, is because of Pope Gregory and the Gregorian calendar. That is, we're celebrating the new year that was set up by this Gregory. To really appreciate how new year should be celebrated, you have to know a little bit about Pope Gregory. So you can really like get into the spirit of the day. On New Year's Day, 1577, Pope Gregory the 13th decreed 
that all Roman Jews under pain of death must listen attentively to the compulsory Catholic conversion sermon given in Roman synagogues after Friday night services. Okay, now imagine that you're living in a little town and somebody in that town makes decree that all of your little boys and girls after services on Friday night should be brought to a compulsory conversion service where they'll be taught Catholicism. Okay, imagine how you would feel about such a person. Next step. On New Year's Day, 1578, Pope Gregory's warming up. He signed into law a tax forcing Jews to pay for the support of a, quote, house of conversion, end quote, that was set up to convert Jews to Christianity. So Jews are now paying for this tax that will then pay the bishops to come and convert the Jews. On New Year's, 1581, Gregory finally ordered his troops to confiscate all sacred literature from the Roman Jewish community. That is, they went in, they took all the copies of the Talmud, they broke into synagogues, and they took all copies of the Sifri Torah, of the Torah scrolls. Okay, now the problem was that some of the Jews were not enthusiastic about giving up their Torah scrolls. So thousands of Jews were, were murdered in the campaign in the most horrific manner. They were flayed alive, Jews were tortured. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a holocaust, yeah, conducted by Pope Gregory. Throughout the medieval and post-medieval periods, January the 1st, supposedly the day on which Jesus' circumcision initiated the reign of Christianity and the death of Judaism, was reserved for anti-Jewish activities, synagogue and book burnings, public tortures, and simple murder. Until today, that's how many people like to celebrate January the 1st. The Israeli government decided that it was inappropriate for Jews to celebrate a Gregorian New Year's in Israel. And therefore, New Year's celebrations in Israel are discouraged. Instead, there has to be a party on December the 31st at night. So instead of having a New Year's party, what happens in Israel all across this country are they have <coughs> Sylvester parties. Okay, now, Americans are not familiar with Sylvester. Sylvester was a great Christian theologian. He was the quote-unquote saint and pope who was ruling during the Council of Nicaea. The year before the Council of Nicaea, Sylvester convinced Constantine to prohibit Jews from living anywhere in, in the area of Jerusalem. And of course, there were a lot of Jews who didn't want to give up their homes. But Constantine, at Sylvester's urging, went and just slaughtered any Jews who wouldn't leave. At the Council of Nicaea, Sylvester arranged for the passage of a host of viciously anti-Semitic legislation. All Catholic saints are awarded day on which Christians celebrate and pay tribute to their saints' memory. December the 31st is St. Sylvester's Day. Hence, celebrations on the night of December 31st are dedicated to Sylvester's memory. So tonight, as all the parties begin, and people start making toasts and drinking and having a good time, in Israel, what we're celebrating is not just the circumcision of Jesus and the end of Judaism's reign on earth, the demise of Judaism. Here, we're actually celebrating the memory of the Pope who reigned over the Council of Nicaea, St. Sylvester, the man who was responsible for thousands and thousands of Jewish deaths. With all of this in mind, I wish you a happy new year. That concludes our presentation of Ancient Wisdom for Modern Minds by Lawrence Kellerman. For more tapes by Lawrence Kellerman, visit www.lawrencekellerman.com. That's www.lawrencekellerman.com.